After a hundred years, the memory of war can fade away faster than the scars on the land. Coming up in the hour ahead, historian Mark D. Van Els explains how you can walk in the footsteps of the first U.S. soldiers to fight in a major military campaign overseas. That was when U.S. forces took part in the First World War. You can still walk through the woods there and you can still see some of the shell holes from the battle, uh, zigzag trenches going through the woods. In Poland, the Gothic city of Krakow stands witness to how much life can change. The cultural heart of Poland was once the Jewish center of Europe. Then came the 20th century. About a quarter of the city was Jewish all the way up until World War II. And for Europe's up-and-coming destinations, we'll get tips for touring the Balkan back roads including scenic Montenegro. It is a spectacular mountain landscape with the deepest river canyon in Europe, and it will absolutely take your breath away. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. One great way to connect with the locals is to speak the language, or at least some of it. Rosetta Stone is a fast, fun way to learn. It's got helpful tools like online video chats with native-speaking teachers. You can take the Rosetta Stone demo or purchase the program at a special discount at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. The battles were mostly centered in Europe, but World War I changed America forever as well. Coming up, historian Mark D. Van Els tells us what the sacrifices of Allied and American troops can teach us today about the war to end all wars. We'll also get visitor tips for exploring Poland's top attraction, the cultural capital of Krakow. We're at 877-333-7425. Let's start today's Travel with Rick Steves with insider advice for exploring the Balkan Peninsula, an area that lately has been on many up-and-coming lists. The coast of Croatia has already become a major tourist destination, and for good reason. But let's head inland on the uncrowded back roads of the Balkan Peninsula. Historian Ben Curtis has logged thousands of miles in the region, and he's written A Traveler's History of Croatia, as well as a book on the history of the Habsburg dynasty. And Amir Telebacirovic is a journalist from Sarajevo, who also guides American visitors around his home region. Ben and Amir, thanks for joining us. Thanks Thank for having you. us. Ben, how do you define Balkans? The Balkans is this peninsula of southeastern Europe. Think of it as the Black Sea is on the east and then the... Uh, Adriatic and the Aegean are kind of on the west and the south, and it's very, very mountainous. It includes countries such as Bulgaria, Serbia, Macedonia, Montenegro, Greece, also Albania, Bosnia, and then it gets a little tricky up north. Croatia and Slovenia don't necessarily fit into the Balkans. Sort of lassoed into the Balkans because of the formation of Yugoslavia, perhaps. And today, of course, Yugoslavia has fallen apart but we do have them associated with the Balkans. Now, mm-hmm. we have a word called balkanization. Mm-hmm. How, how does that relate to the Balkans and why? There's a lot of negative stereotypes I think North Americans have about the Balkans. Balkanization, the idea there is that you splinter into all these different ethnic groups and countries and squabbling little factions. That comes from this image that the Balkans certainly have had some history of conflict, perhaps not more so than elsewhere in Europe, but it does have still today one of the things that makes it most fascinating, a diverse ethnic patchwork of peoples. And they can live side by side, most of the time peacefully, but as we've seen sometimes in recent decades, not always peacefully. But it's kind of where the Slavic world and the Germanic world and the, and the Romantic Italian world come together. It's where Islam comes exactly. together with Christendom. Mm-hmm. It's like tectonic plates coming together, and there's going to be some sparks. Exactly. And just one town that I'll talk about is that I think is worth checking out, and it, it exemplifies this, is the town of Prizren in Kosovo, which is one of these new countries. It used to be part of Serbia right there. You can understand some of the difficult politics. But Prizren is this historic Serbian city but it's now mostly Albanian, but it also has minorities of Turks, still Turkish-speaking people, Bosniaks, so people, Bosnian Muslims, but then also other minorities you've never even heard of, but can be classed as Roma. So all mm. these people living together, this diverse mosaic of cultures. Now, this is in Kosovo? In Kosovo, And is yeah. this the town that I think of as Prizren, or how do you, Prizren, yeah, how do you spell that? P-R-I-Z-R-E-N. And that is a, a fascinating town to stop in as you're traveling through the Balkans. Now, with all of this history of squabbling and recent war and so on, is it safe for tourism now, and what's hot if it is? Absolutely. It is absolutely safe for tourism. I want everybody listening to know that you do not need to be afraid of the Balkans. In fact, you should go there now because it's relatively untouristed. Mm-hmm. If you go to Prizren, if you go to Kosovo, if you go to many places in Albania or even Macedonia, I guarantee you, you will run into hardly any other Americans or Canadians in many of those places. 
Amir Talibacherovich, you're from Sarajevo, yes. uh, the capital city of Bosnia-Herzegovina. Yes. What's new for tourists in the Balkans, and specifically, what's new in Bosnia? I don't know if you heard about that. We have, a, <laughs> it was on, uh, in American news a couple of times, so-called European pyramids. Mm. First European pyramid, ancient pyramids. Really? In uh, only 30 kilometers northern from Sarajevo, there was a little town called Visoko, and next to it there was a hill with kind of, well, let's say, pyramidic shape. And there was one Bosnian archaeologist who was inspired by that because he was expert in the Latin American pyramids like Maya, Aztec, etc. And how far back do these go? How old? Well, that's a tricky part. Mm-hmm. Uh, they cannot connect it to any known culture in the Balkans except Illyrian, with like a very ancient tribe that lived even before the Romans. Nobody knows, maybe nearly 3,000 years ago. What he did, uh, this archaeologist, he uh, gathered a group of the uh, speleologists, coal miners, etc. They studied excavations. There are still no evidences that's the pyramid. Many people think it's it's a hoax. I don't know, like something that he invented, made up just for the uh, So, but this is tw- 20 miles north of Sarajevo. Yeah. Something, something to look at. And uh, one way or another, tourists are coming for that. Then they discovered some corridors beneath the hill. Anyway, uh, at least inspired people to make local jokes. That's the one that says, like, there is a new theory who were actually ancient uh, Egyptian pharaohs, Bosnian refugees. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So that's a, just a reminder, there's a lot of history in Bosnia. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're talking about the offbeat Balkans. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Lane's calling in in Seattle, Washington. Lane, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Uh, I'm planning a three-week trip to the Balkans and hoping to find a lot of backdoor places along the way, and I was hoping you could maybe recommend somewhere to stop on my trip between Plitvice and Sarajevo. So now this is a, a great uh, challenge for all of us because when we go to the Balkans, we know to see Plitvice National Park. It's a watery wonderland of terraced lakes connected by countless waterfalls, and Dubrovnik is the pearl of the Adriatic, and we're going to see that beautiful little mini Venice and, and some of the more famous islands along the Dalmatian coast. Ben, what are some ways to distinguish Lane's trip by going beyond where the tourists go? In between Plitvica and Sarajevo, you might consider a stop-off at the town of Bihać in Bosnia, which is really not that far from Plitvica. Actually, it's an old royal city, has a very long history. I think you'll find that, like a lot of towns outside of, say, Sarajevo and Mostar in Bosnia, uh, they don't get a lot of tourists, and so don't expect polished tourist information offices like you'd find in Germany or France or something like that. But uh, that's great because you can wander the old cobbled streets on your own and just explore and uh, meet some locals and pop into a local place and eat some food and you won't have a horde of tourists in there with you. Bihać would be pretty much untouristed. Mostar is a a much bigger and more uh, touristed destination in Bosnia, but I find Mostar one of the most fascinating cities to visit and it's appalling how few people in Dubrovnik even consider going to Mostar. Mostar is on... I would think the majority of postcards that come from Bosnia for a very good reason, because it has the classic image of the country, which is the 500-year-old bridge over the Nenetva River, uh, this amazing limestone, beautiful white limestone bridge built by the Turks. And you can kind of think of it again, as Rick said, where this meeting point of east and west. And as a lovely old town, you can also learn a lot about what happened in Bosnia in the 1990s, because Mostar was suffered a lot during that war. But now it's rebuilt, it's welcoming to tourists, a great place to connect to the Turkish influence and also the vibrancy of Bosnian culture today in Mostar. I hope that's helpful for you, Lane. That's great. I am actually going to Mostar and spending a night there on the way from Sarajevo to the coast. So, mm. looking forward to that. All right. Hey, best wishes on your trip. Thanks for your call. Thank you. Sonia is calling in from Mount Horeb in Wisconsin. Thank you. Hello. I'm uh, planning a trip to the Balkans, and I'm just wondering how well are American tourists accepted there? And what do I need to know about their culture and customs that I may not be familiar with? Amir, why don't you take this? How are Americans accepted in Bosnia these days? Well, pretty much as most of the other tourists, whether European or Turkish or Japanese, there is no big deal. Of course, sometimes if you're planning to talk too much about politics, mm-hmm. then it might, you know... Turn because we supported uh, Croatia over the Serbs, mm-hmm. I believe, didn't we, yeah. in the war? And I, I remember going to some Serbian monasteries in Croatia feeling yeah. quite unwelcome, and they just thought, oh, this is an American, he's the enemy, and they, they yeah, yeah, accommodated me, but yeah. it was they were very uptight about an American. Today, if you talk politics with a Serbian, you might find some of that feeling, I suppose. We can then say, like, maybe which part of Bosnia, but in most of the cases, as mm-hmm. I've been traveling all over the country and working with different uh, American visitors, they're, in most of the cases, well uh, accepted. It only comes tricky if you talk, not even about mentioning politics, but talking deeply about politics, mm-hmm. Bosnia is in a sandwich between Serbia and Croatia. 
So uh, speaking of American foreign policy, people might say, why did America allow genocide to happen in Bosnia back in the middle of 90s, you know? Mm-hmm. And that is one of the things that makes Bosnian war different from the other wars in the region that happened in the 90s, because that's the only country where the genocide happened. But apart from that, they're well accepted. Uh, speaking of customs, if you are going to visit some Bosnian home, tradition is to take off the shoes, you know, like at the door and yeah, not a big deal. Sonia, it's complicated and it's really rewarding to go there. Good luck on your trip. Thank you very much for taking my call. Thanks for your call. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking about getting behind the crowds, getting back door in the Balkans. We've been joined by Amir Talabacirovic and Ben Curtis. Ben, what's your top tip for Americans visiting Bosnia and the Balkans to get the most out of their experience? My top tip is don't forget Montenegro. Especially if you're going to Croatia, Montenegro, and if you get as far south as Dubrovnik, Montenegro is an easy hop over the border. It has beautiful coastline, and then you can also go inland to the Durmitor National Park, which is a UNESCO heritage site, and it is a spectacular mountain landscape with a Tata River Canyon, which is the deepest river canyon in Europe, and it will absolutely take your breath away. Wow, now Montenegro, independent from Serbia only since 2006. It's got less than a million people. I think the average income is like $4,000 a year. I understand they don't even have their own currency. They're just sort of freeloading on the euro, right? They, they've got yeah, the euro, yeah. but they that's what the they euro. use. But they don't have uh, permission to use it. They're just using it because they it can't works. afford their... It works. <laughs> and it's so close to Dubrovnik. And I'll tell you, a lot of people use the word fjord loosely. When you talk about the Bay of Kotor as a fjord, like in a Norwegian fjord, it really does feel like that. It's just very striking natural wonder. Absolutely. Sheer-sided mountains rising right up off this beautiful blue Adriatic. Okay, Montenegro, a, a new place that we can check out. And Amir... As a guide, what's your greatest joy when showing an American visitor your country of Bosnia? Uh, depends from place to place. When we talk about nature, then it's so many mountains. I think 93% of the Bosnia is mountainous with hills and mountains. You know, almost that some people call it like the Switzerland of the Balkans. When it comes to the cities and urban culture, then it's this uh, very specific mixture of four religions in the same neighborhood. You know, we have some parts of Balkans when we say, okay, here is where the Orthodox Church is dominant, this is where the Catholic Church is dominant. This is where the Islam is dominant. In Sarajevo, you have in the same neighborhood mosques, uh, minarets, Catholic churches, Orthodox churches, and Jewish synagogues. And Jewish culture is very intru- very vibrant there, too, although very small. And as a I mean, tour guide are, with people visiting mm-hmm. your city for their first time, it must be a wonderful challenge to help people sort all that out. Well, I use it as an as a example to prove to the people, to the visitors, that that war was not between the uh, one population versus another, even though it looked like that at some points, so that to prove that uh, it was fabricated and it was staged because for centuries, not for a couple of generations, but for centuries, people coexist together. This is so exciting to be able to share your insights into the Balkans. Amir Talabacirovic and Ben Curtis, thank you very much for helping us better understand this vibrant, complex, and rewarding corner of Europe for us to travel and enjoy. Glad to be here. Thank you. You'll find links to Ben and Amir's previous appearances here on Travel with Rick Steves in the radio section of ricksteves.com. We have an insider's guide to Krakow in Poland in just a bit. Up next, we explore America's role on the European battlefields of World War I. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone, giving you feedback on your pronunciation as you learn a new language to help your language be clear and authentic-sounding to the native ear. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. When the American doughboys joined in on the front lines of the First World War in Europe in 1917 and 1918, it was America's first large-scale military action overseas. But far fewer Americans know about the history of what was called the War to End All Wars than we know about World War II. And when you walk through the memorials in Europe, you hear fewer American accents at that World War I memorial than you would at a World War II site. Mark D. Van Els is a professor at the City University of New York, and he's written a fascinating book that, that tells the forgotten stories of the American soldiers who went overseas to fight in the bloodiest war the world had ever seen. He's written a book called America and World War I, A Traveler's Guide, and he joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves. Professor Van Els, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. You know, Mark, when we think of World War I, uh, is it true that Europeans call it the Great War and, and we call it World War I, or what's the deal with the two names? 
It was known as the Great War because it really didn't seem that they could get any bigger than that, uh, sometimes called the World War. And then when World War II came along, then we began to call it World War I. Do Europeans call it World War I now, or do they still refer to it as the Great War? I hear the term Great War a lot. We also think of doughboys, and I think the only thing a lot of us know about World War I, when it, as it applies to Americans, is our guys were called the doughboys. Uh, where does that right. name come from? The name is just a nickname for an American soldier, much like GI in World War II, let's say. The origins of the term doughboy are sort of lost in the mists of time, and there is several different theories about where it comes from. Some date it back as early as the Mexican-American War in the 1840s, where the soldiers marching through the, the West in Mexico got all dusty and they looked like dough, and so they started mm. to call them doughboys. Some say that it might be the, the dough that they cooked in the field. Some think the term might come from the buttons they wore that looked like globs of dough. So there's no, no one knows really exactly right. where it came from. Uh, the term had been heard before World War I, but it becomes the uh, term to describe the American soldier in that conflict. When we think about the centennial of World War I, which went from 1914 to 1918, and, and there'll be several kind of centennials in these next few years, it's also interesting to know that all the people who remember that war are, are dead now. And uh, when nobody remembers a war firsthand, it kind of fades away. Have, have you thought about that much when you put together your guidebook, America and World War I? Yeah, I did. I mean, I'm a historian, so it's my job to sort of keep those memories alive. Uh, yeah, the last American World War I veteran died in 2011. The last World War I veteran in the world died uh, about a year or two ago. Now, there's no more memory, as you say, a personal memory of the war. And so it does run the risk of being forgotten. Now, how is the centennial being remembered to uh, counteract that? I found that in Europe, um, especially in France and Britain, it's something that is a very, a very solemn event. There have been a number of important ceremonies and remembrances and museums opening up and these sorts of things. I think Americans have not really given the First World War that much thought. We were only in the war for 18 months. It's overshadowed by World War II. Americans seem much more interested in World War II. I mean, it was much bigger and more dramatic, I suppose. And for us, World War I has sort of been overshadowed by World War II. Uh, you know, if you travel to small villages in France and you look at the names of the dead on the local memorials, typically World War I is oftentimes much larger. Britain, much the same as well. So that war left a much greater indelible mark on their psyche. And for Americans, it's almost sort of an afterthought. Yeah, I read that something like half of all the men of fighting age in France by the end of World War I, 1918, were casualties, either killed or wounded. And Yeah, it's incredible. Millions died, and we have a hard time imagining that. You go to a small town anywhere in Europe, and you, you look on the main square, and there's a memorial to uh, every family's got uh, a loved one on that list. Mm -hmm. and Multiple, usually. How many thousand uh, American soldiers died in combat in World War I? There are about 53,000 American soldiers who died in combat. Slightly more than that died of accidents and disease. World War I was the time of the great influenza epidemic. Oh. So even though battlefield medicine had gotten much better and soldiers who would have died in the Civil War would have survived in World War I uh, because of the influenza hmm. epidemic, you still had slightly more die of disease and accidents than battlefield casualties. Now, those 53,000, they died just within a span of 18 months. I mean, we were only in the war from April 1917 to November of 1918. That's basically three semesters of college, when you think about it. Our presidential election seemed to last a lot longer <laughs> than that, right? So that's a remarkably short period of time for the whole country to gear up, form a mass army out of nothing, ship it overseas, and have it make a very important difference at the end of the war at that crucial moment. So it was a great moment for America, but we don't often think about it. And while other countries lost literally millions of people, they lost as many people as we lost in the whole war in, in a weekend mm -hmm. on occasion, I would imagine, yeah. we had a huge impact. I mean, we came in uh, in 1917, and while we, we didn't take the huge losses that, that our allies took, what was the impact? I mean, were we the turning point when, when the American troops came in? Yes and no. Oftentimes, Americans are criticized for coming over to Europe and claiming to have saved Europe from right. their problems and everything. And there, you know, there's, it's more complex than that. Uh -huh. um, the British Navy, for example, was able to uh, strangle the German economy, and that was a major factor in ultimate German defeat because their economy begins to collapse. 
But there's also no doubt that the Americans coming in at that crucial moment with a seemingly inexhaustible supply of manpower. Mm -hmm. you know, we were just getting geared up in 1918. Yeah. General Pershing expected 1919 would be the big show. And there was just no way the Germans could match the American manpower. You know, we stumbled along at first, but we got good at what we were doing. Mm -hmm. And um, the American entry into the war was a critical moment in ultimate Allied victory. I would just think from a psychological point of view, just the massive American economic power and to be able to just fuel the war must have just oh, yeah. been brutal for the psyche of the enemy. Uh, when when you did your research, Mark, you read a lot of letters and a lot of uh, first-hand accounts and so on. Give me a feeling for what it was like with American troops, not not commanders and so on, but just the grunts. Did they did they mix it up with the Allies, with the Brits and the Irish and the French? Did they get along? Uh, what, what was the dynamic uh, among the troops? Yeah, they generally did get along. I think what's interesting about the World War One doughboy is how enthusiastic they were. America avoided for a long time trying to get into the war. There were anti-war songs that were sung uh, back home. But mm -hmm. once we were in it, and most were draftees, by the way, mm. who um, did not volunteer. But once they're in it, they committed themselves to it mentally as well as physically. Yeah. So they were anxious to get overseas. They really wanted to get over there and kick butt and take names and show what <laughs> America could do. They got along pretty well with the Allies. They got along well with the French. Uh, relations with the British could sometimes be a little cagier, I guess. Uh, they liked the Australians and the Canadians, and the Allies were glad to see them. You wrote in your book about how the American uh, doughboys were a little bit wide-eyed and naive and actually got distracted by picking up souvenirs along the way and so on. That's true in all wars, yeah. Because <laughs> I can just see these guys coming over. They've never been out of Nebraska, and here they are. It's a little R&R &R in Paris, and uh, you're, you're going through oh, these yeah. churches and these uh, towns that are just like all yours. It was a great cultural awakening. You know, there was a song, How Are You Going to Keep Him Down on the Farm Once He's Been to Paris? You know, it really was an eye-opening experience for these soldiers. Most had never been more than 20 miles from their hometown, probably never out of their state before. Then there's, you know, before they even go overseas, they're sent off to training camps in the U.S., big cities like New York or Chicago or someplace like this. Uh, they're introduced to things like showers and safety razors and movies and all kinds of things hmm. I've never seen before. And then, of course, going overseas, you know, yeah. travel was, foreign travel was for the wealthy. And here's some farm kid from Kansas who's suddenly in the middle of Notre Dame Cathedral. And it was... um a great cultural awakening for many of them, too, yes. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Mark D. Van Els, and his book is America and World War I, A Traveler's Guide. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Jake's calling in from Houston in Texas. Jake, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Uh, my wife and I are going to be going to Paris next year, and last time I was in France, I was unable to find any resources on World War I memorials. We saw a lot from World War II, but unfortunately, nothing really for World War One. Is there anywhere we can go that's a short trip from Paris? There are lots of places. My first suggestion would be to uh, look up on the web uh, the American Battle Monuments Commission. During the 1930s, they built some very stunning monuments on some of the battlefields of the First World War. They maintained the American cemeteries. And if you can get to those places, they're really mm. spectacular. They hired the best artists of the day. They're done in this Art Deco style that's really quite stunning. So I would start there. And also, Jake, the uh, military museum in Paris at Les Invalides is, is wonderful for a look at World War I. Oh, yes, it is. I'd have to agree with that, too. Thanks, Jake. Thank you. Carol's calling in from Honolulu in Hawaii. Carol, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Hi. Hey, do you have a comment for Mark? I do. My husband and I were in Vienna last year, and we went to a fabulous museum about eight minutes away by taxi from the Opera House, and it covered World War One. and I just wanted to mention it because it was a fantastic museum, and I actually can't pronounce the name of it. It's something like Harris... The, yeah, the military or the war museum in Vienna. It's got the car that uh, Emperor Franz Ferdinand was in when he was assassinated in Sarajevo. Mm. That's right. We saw that. Oh, it's amazing. Mark, have you been to that museum? No, I have not. Um, I'm sorry to say. Vienna's on my short list, but I uh, have not been there. There are some really great World War I museums. There's a brand new one, for example, in a French city called Meaux. It's right outside of Paris. You can get there by train from Paris. 
that covers the whole war, including the American involvement in the war. You might also try the um, Imperial War Museum in London, which, of course, covers the British part of the war, but mm -hmm. it's, it, it's pretty good about the First World War. And there are some good places in the U.S. If you're in Kansas City, for example, that's where the National World War I Museum is. It was renovated and reopened, I think, in 2006. It's at a spot where they built a very spectacular war memorial after World War I. So it's just a spectacular place. In Kansas City, it's one of the best World War I museums I've been to. So we're talking Kansas City, Vienna, the War Museum in Vienna, the uh, Imperial War Museum in London, and Mo outside of Paris. How do we spell Mo, Mark? M-E-A-U-X. All right, Carol, good luck on your travels. Great, thank you. Thanks for calling. As a history professor for City University of New York, Mark D. Van Els reminds us of the people whose sacrifices helped change the map of Europe during the First World War. He recommends World War I battlefields and monuments that we can visit today in his book called America and World War I, A Traveler's Guide. And Alice is calling in from St. George in Utah. Hi, Alice. Thanks for taking my call, Rick. I'm going to be visiting the um, World War I Museum in Mo, and I was wondering if there are any sites that your guests could suggest in the immediate area. I'll be traveling by public transport that would enhance the visit to the museum. Yeah, I have to admit I drove when I was there. Uh, you can take the train from Paris to Mode and take a bus from there to the museum itself. Many of the American battlefields are, you know, they're much more easily accessible by car. So, for example, not far away is a place called Chateau Thierry, which is a very important place in U.S. military history. The American troops were very important in stopping the German advance. During 1918, there's a very big memorial on a hill above the city. It's a big colonnade, and it's very spectacular with great views. And not far away from that is a place called Bella Wood, where the Marine Corps made a very famous attack. They took heavy casualties, but they showed themselves to be really tough fighters. You can still walk through the woods there, and you can still see some of the shell holes from the battle, zigzag trenches going through the woods. The story goes that some of the trees still have shrapnel in them, so mm. woodsmen refuse to cut them because they're afraid they're going to hit the, the metal shards and these sorts of things. And those aren't too far from Mo. I don't think you can get there by public transportation, however. I don't know that. You'd have to look into that. I would have to say driving to many of these places is probably better if you can swing that because some of the battlefields and monuments are in some rather remote places. And it's quite easy to rent a car, and then, of course, you're just within a couple hours of Verdun and the Somme and all the big-name battlefields mm -hmm. of World War I. Hey, Mark, uh, both Carol from Hawaii and Alice from Utah are talking about this uh, great World War I museum in Mo, M-E-A-U-X, outside of Paris in France. Can you yeah. just describe the museum just a little bit, because it sounds like it's really one of the important ones. Yeah, it opened very recently. Right outside of it is a monument built by Americans to commemorate the first Battle of the Marne in 1914. It's state-of-the-art. It has lots of uniforms and lots of big hardware, um, planes and artillery pieces and those sorts of things. Again, it covers the war in the sort of bigger, grander sense, but it covers the lives of the troops and some of the hardware and those sorts of things. So it's worth a trip. So if we're going to be remembering the centennial of World War I, there's a lot of great museums and uh, most of the battles that we think of were fought between Paris and the border of Germany and Mo would be perhaps the best museum to see in the countryside there to take us back to the the gear and the trenches and all the heartache of, of the war to end all wars. Mark, if you're thinking about the centennial coming up, what, what do you wish after writing your book, uh, American World War One, and the fact that there's nobody around anymore that remembers it, a hundred years later, what should we remember or be mindful of about World War One? That's a good question. I think there are lots of things. I think World War I was this very critical moment in American history. As you mentioned before, it's our first major overseas war. It really made us a superpower. It's our first great involvement in Europe. In some respects, it did set the stage for a second world war in which we were also involved. I don't really get into this so much in my book, but generally speaking, this war also changed life here in the U.S. very significantly. Uh, for example, it's during the First World War that African Americans begin something called the Great Migration, where they begin to move in large numbers from the South to the North in search of jobs and these sorts of things. Uh, women end up getting the right to vote at the end of World War I. Prohibition comes in part because of the First World War. Uh, so it had this tremendous effect on our place in the world, mm -hmm. our society, 
and we forget about it. And now there's no one left to directly tell us the story. So I'd like people to uh, really remember this forgotten and neglected moment in American history. I'd also say that there, in addition to places in Europe, uh, one of the reasons I wrote this book is that there are lots of places here within the United States. There were training camps and air bases and naval stations and all kinds of things here in the U.S. Important museums like the one in Kansas City I mentioned before, monuments and these sorts of things. And you don't have to go very far to commemorate the First World War. You can probably do it mm. in your hometown somewhere, basically any town of any size probably has a World War I memorial somewhere and you can visit. You know, I, I walked to the studio here today. I live in the New York City suburbs, and I got off at uh, Grand Central Station. Grand Central Station was built by a man named William Wilgus. He was the engineer who uh, designed the, the tracks and things like that. He was also the top railway engineer for the Army in Europe, and he built these fantastically complex rail yards, particularly one near Saint-Nazaire to help ship the stuff to the front. Then I walked through Times Square, and there's the statue of Father Duffy, who was the chaplain of a, a Irish-American combat unit, very much beloved by the troops, a very important figure in Irish-American history here in New York. A lot of people go to Times Square, the crossroads of the world. They sit under Duffy's statue, and they don't have any idea who he is or what he was about. Then I walked past Central Park, and that park has a number of World War I memorials, including a very large tree dedicated to the poet Joyce Kilmer, who was a, a soldier in World War I and killed in the summer of 1918. And I was just walking to the studio here. And I, th I think uh, if people look around their hometowns more carefully or their home states, I, they'll find lots of memorials and things like this that have been overlooked for 100 years. And this might be the time to really revisit them. And they can learn about that in your book, America and World War I, A Traveler's Guide. Mark D. Van Els, thanks so much for uh, shining a light on the Great War, 100 years after it was fought. My pleasure. They'll never want to see a race of plow. And who's a deuce and Polly Boo a cow? How are you going to keep us down on the farm after this team Next, we're joined by a native-born guide to Krakow in Poland and by my right-hand expert on all things Eastern European as we get acquainted with Poland's cultural capital. Our number is 877-333-RICK at Travel with Rick Steves. For travelers looking for someplace new to explore in the old world, let's get acquainted now with one of Central Europe's oldest and most interesting cities. That would be Krakow. It sits on the Vistula River near the Carpathian Mountains in southern Poland. Krakow is often called the second city of Poland after the busy capital city of Warsaw, and Krakow's importance dates back to at least the 7th century. There's a lot for visitors to explore, from medieval times right up to our generation. Beata McComas was born and raised in Krakow and now lives in the U.S. She specializes in guiding American visitors to her home country. And Cameron Hewitt logs many miles in Poland each year as the co-author of the Rick Steves Guidebook to Eastern Europe. Beata and Cameron, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for having us. Beata, when you think of Americans dreaming about going to Poland, Warsaw is the biggest city, but there's something special about Krakow. What does Krakow mean to the Polish people? Well, it was our second capital for about 500 years. So we have the, the castle. 500 years, it was the capital of the Polish yes. people. Wow. Yes. So we have the castle, the uh, Gothic castle there, with the cathedral on the Wawel. Does everybody know what Wawel is in Poland? Everybody in Poland does. What is yes. it? Well, that's the, the oldest part of, of Krakow, the so hub where a, everything if started. A spiritual piece of, of dirt in Poland, it would be the Wawel Hill. Correct, the Wawel Hill. That's where the most important palace, the most important church, the most important tombs. Yes. And John Paul II was the bishop in Krakow. In Krakow, correct. 
Krakow also has the oldest uh, university in Poland and second oldest in Central Europe. Cameron, when you think about Krakow, you can also add on to that. It's important in uh, the Jewish culture because I understand in its day it was the sort of the center of Judaism in Europe. Well, right. For much of uh, European history, most European countries from the Middle Ages really were either ejecting their Jewish residents or not interested in having them settle there. But Poland had an unusually tolerant king who actually actively promoted Jewish people coming and settling. About a quarter of the city was was Jewish all the way up in, until World War II. And that Jewish culture really thrived in Krakow. And especially there's a neighborhood called Kazimierz, which is just uh, about a 15-minute walk from the main square of Krakow. And they had their own little town, their own little a market square, their own churches, their own synagogues, and it was a, a mixed community, but it was also uh, certainly a, a place where a lot of the Jewish people were, were living. Now, do I understand that four or five hundred years ago, like more than half of all the Jews in Europe were in Poland? That's correct. It seems hard to believe, but really that was the, the homeland of Judaism in Europe for, for centuries throughout the Middle Ages? For centuries, Poland was the only place that would take those people. It was a, a time when a lot of the rest of Europe was telling them to go away, and, and Poland said, come on, you can settle here. And then today there's 200 Jews left in Krakow. Right. After, of course, after the Holocaust, the population is, is almost nothing. So if you're in, like when I was in Krakow, I saw lots of uh, school groups from Israel coming up there making a pilgrimage. What would you see if you were a Jewish uh, a traveler coming to Krakow to better understand uh, your heritage? You have a lot of different synagogues that have been rebuilt and reopened in the last few years. You have some very evocative cemeteries that were forgotten. And actually, the, when the Nazis came in, they would run their tanks through the cemeteries and knock over all the headstones and cover them with dirt. And you wouldn't even know they were there. It was really interesting, actually, in the end of communism, 1989. That was a part of the history that still was not very much embraced. And it wasn't really until Steven Spielberg showed up. He filmed Schindler's List there, and I think it was in 1993. That's where those events actually took place, and that's where he came to film the movie. He didn't have to film it there. He could have filmed it anywhere. So people today say, well, we really appreciate that he came in. He brought an awareness of the world to Krakow, but he also locally kind of reignited an interest in this Jewish heritage. Through telling the story of Schindler's List, he reminded people how important Krakow and Poland were to the Jewish story and, and how true, isn't it? important that really, was He really the directed that, and then Krakow has capitalized on that, really. Right, and for years, I would go, starting about 10 years ago, every year I'd go back and a new synagogue would have been reopened. And in a lot of cases, they were buildings that had been forgotten or they'd been turned into something else. And starting with Schindler's List... Um, in, the, in the factory. In the factory, right. So the other interesting part here is the actual factory where Oskar Schindler and his workers lived and worked was on the outskirts of this neighborhood. And again, it was deserted for years, and very recently they've turned it into a really interesting state-of-the-art museum. Very impressive museum, I've got to say. One of, one of the most powerful Holocaust-related museums I've seen in Europe. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Cameron Hewitt and Beata McComas, two experts on Poland. Beata is a Polish-born tour guide, and Cameron writes guidebooks to Eastern Europe. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Steve's calling in from Minneapolis in Minnesota. Steve, thanks for your call. Nice to be with you. First, how did the presence of the Nazis' largest death camps, the Auschwitz-Birkenau, impact Krakow in the post-war years? And second... How do present-day Krakowians feel about having uh, what I call the saddest place on earth in their backyard? So we should remind our listeners that Auschwitz, uh, just a huge and notorious concentration camp, death camp, is just uh, the number one side trip from Krakow. It's uh, an hour away. And uh, Beata, how do people feel about having Auschwitz there in their backyard? From the last day of the war, 1945, we wanted to preserve the site for uh, future generations to show, hey, this is how bad it can get. And so we never turned down the buildings. They're still standing as they were. So we should say Auschwitz and Birkenau, those are sister camps. Auschwitz was first. They built Birkenau when they learned how to do their terrible deed better and bigger. So Birkenau is the vast factory of death next to Auschwitz. Yes, so now more than ever before, we feel how important it is to have those buildings there being presented to the world and open for a public. And it's just a statement. And we're proud of the fact that we preserve that site. And hopefully many more people will visit and take a minute to think about where we were, where we're going. And I was actually very surprised, pleasantly surprised to see a young German families in their 30s, with the kids, six, seven, eight years old, oh, yeah. walking through there and talking about history openly, not feeling ashamed, just talking mm -hmm. how what it was, how it was. 
any concentration camp uh, visit to me is a rich opportunity to learn. And the richest, most impactful visit I've had, I think, is Auschwitz and Birkenau. And to answer your question, I think something that maybe goes without saying, but uh, when I work as a tour guide, I really emphasize to my tour members, this is in Poland, but it is a German phenomenon. It was a Nazi phenomenon. Mm-hmm. It wasn't wanted by the people of Poland any, any more than, no. than anyone else. So in terms of how today's Polish people kind of reconcile that, they think of it as something that someone brought in from the outside and that they now feel a responsibility to make sure everyone has access to. Steve, does that all make sense? Oh, absolutely, yes. And I have visited uh, Auschwitz-Birkenau and also Dachau in Germany, but I would say uh, the immensity of Birkenau is what is so overwhelming. And that's why I call it the saddest place on earth, because of the impact it had, had and has. Hey, Steve, thanks for your call. Thank you all. Bye-bye. Our guides to Krakow are Cameron Hewitt, who co-authors with me the Rick Steves Guide to Eastern Europe and tour guide Beata McComas. She was born and raised in Krakow during the communist years. You know, Beata, one Krakow neighborhood I find particularly interesting is called Nova Huta on the eastern edge of town. Nova Huta. Am I saying that correctly, Beata? That is correct. It's almost like a separate city with about, what, 200,000 residents. There's block after block of those massive, bland, concrete apartment buildings that the communists built after World War II. It all looks like it was designed for the workers and their families to make sure that that new Polish society was going to be as efficient and productive as possible. That's pretty much what it is. You felt like you're a part of a well, quote-unquote, old machine. You're designed to do one thing and one thing only. That's set from above. Your, your so local government is... top down yes. and you're a cog in a wheel in a big machine. Yes, yes. And really, you go to work, you do your thing, you go home to this, this mass-produced apartment complex made out of those big concrete blocks because that was the most efficient way to quickly build something for many people. But live. you think about this, this would be after World War II, and you walk out there today and you think it's a worker's tenement slum, but if you think of the reality of the peasant in Poland after World War II, this would be something they would strive to live in. Wouldn't it be a, a real lucky thing for a, a, a typical Polish person in the 50s? Yeah, in fact, now it's really run down. But uh, when you think about the time, at the time, it was really an idyllic idea. In fact, there are pictures in the museum here at Novohuta. You can see where a lot of peasants brought their farm animals. There are cows grazing in the fields in front of these huge, gigantic, concrete, communist planned workers' towns. This is like the Beverly Hillbillies striking gold. At the beginning, yeah. Th- this was a whole new way of, uh, of envisioning the Polish economy. But yeah, I've talked to people who grew up in that area, and they say, you know, yeah, it was, it was kind of ugly. But on the other hand, it was very efficient. You efficient. Know, they they good... planned it in a really smart way. There was a, a park. Each giant apartment building had a park inside where the kids could play. And there was a parking garage underneath that doubled as a bomb shelter. And the tram stops were perfectly lined up with where people lived. I'm not saying I'd want to live there, but I'm saying if you did live there, especially... Given the the horrors of World War II, it might not have seemed so terrible at the time. And all the propaganda was built in with the names of the squares and the streets and the blocks. Yes, but now uh, there's been sort of a poetic justice. The main square used to be called simply Central Square, and recently they renamed it Ronald Reagan Square. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) See, when you think about it, I mean, we were in such a need after the war of housing. This was, you know, they put this massive structure in less than a year. I grew up in, in something like that in Torun. Really? Mm-hmm. It was honestly like two miles from the city center. Hmm. And it's not, not as big as Nova Huta by any stretch of imagination, but there are probably 15 blocks like that built. And probably the best part of my childhood, you just got out of the building, you scream, who wants to play? You know, there was several blocks around, and kids just popped in and, <laughs> you know, yeah. So you were in the little worker's city and you could just holler, anybody want to play? Yeah. There was no such a thing like play dates. My mom would always tell me, just buzz through the intercom, let me know every hour that you're alive. And so you check in on the intercom. Yeah, it's like, mom, mom, I'm okay. I'm okay. Yeah. And then off we go. And every day I would eat dinner with at some friend's house and vice versa. So I have a good image now of you as a little child in one of these panned worker towns. <laughs> Anybody want to play? That, I mean, really, don't you think that's a great childhood? It's a great childhood. What yeah. was in the playground? Was there toys for the children? Well, the playground, honestly, parents these days would think that your kid would die within a half an hour. 
I mean, sharp corners, everything made out of metal. Probably the paint that everything was painted with was from China with, like, you could, you know, with some with chemicals it, yeah. that you could, yeah. I mean, did, did you have swings or yeah, ladders to climb or what? Absolutely. And uh, more often than not, those are the, like the regular ladders, metal la- ladders, just put on some sidebars. So it was something. improvised. Yeah. Just improvised. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Did everybody have the same apartment? There were usually three designs. It was the, the one bedroom, the two and three bedrooms. And you usually, my parents waited. Well, they were, my mom was in the military. So I believe she was pushed a little bit further, uh, you know, to the front of the line. She had an advantage because she was in the military. Yes, and we had passports. So during communism, we were able to go outside. So we traveled outside of, well, because we, she Your was family in, was military. My yeah. mom was, and so we had the passports to do that. But I've heard that in the apartment, every refrigerator was the same. Every cupboard was the same. Yes. Every you didn't really worry about the style of what you're buying. My parents waited three days in line, day and night. They were taking turns uh, to buy a couch and to uh, And the couch armchairs. would fit because the couch was built with that yeah. apartment in mind. I mean, and probably... You didn't have to wonder if your, if your furniture would fit. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. You were happy that you got a couch. You didn't even ask what color. You just want a couch. <laughs> I remember we had the first colored TV on our block. You did? Yes. Because your mom was military. Yeah. <laughs> well, because we had the stores called Pevex. Yeah. Oh, that's where, where you, you could spend could buy, some hard cash? And we had dollars. Because uh, your mom was military. Yes. And so she had access to dollars. And in Pevex stores, you could buy whatever you wanted. I remember Designer those jeans, stores. You know, colored TVs, whatnot, but only if you had the, the U.S. currency. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about the historic capital and number one site in Poland, I think you can say, Krakow. And we're joined by Beata Makomis and Cameron Hewitt, two Polish tour guides. And Cameron, when you think about Krakow, I have to think about Pope John Paul II, St. John Paul II. That's right. Yeah, new, I have to keep catching myself. He's not just Pope John Paul. He's St. John Paul II. And uh, yeah, he was the archbishop. He wasn't born in Krakow, but he, he spent a lot of time there and was the archbishop there. And people are, as much as all Polish people are incredibly proud of him, the people of Krakow are especially proud of him. And, you know, for years, 10 years ago, while he was still alive, there weren't a lot of sites related to him. In fact, uh, the one thing you could see was uh, the little window where he used to stay when he would visit his, his hometown. There now, was, weren't you there when he died, actually? I was, Krakow? yeah. I was there in uh, spring of 2005 on the night that John Paul died, and it was incredibly moving. We were, I was, happened to be walking through this area where this window was, the room that he used to stay in when he would visit Krakow. And suddenly a speaker, a loudspeaker crackled to life and somebody announced in Polish that the Pope had died. And thousands of people were standing in the street sort of having a silent vigil at this window. And they all just fell to their knees all at the same time. It was just a crippling loss for the Polish people. And at the time, though, for somebody who really wanted to connect with John Paul II, there weren't a lot of sites. There was this window where they would set up a picture of him. Um, There were little sites in the backs of churches. One thing I've really noticed the last few years, especially now that he's a saint, Many interesting, engaging, powerful sites dedicated to the memory of St. John Paul II. Uh, I was just out there a year ago at the new John Paul II Center with the new church. Yeah, they're building a huge uh, ecclesiastical complex with a big modern church and a museum filled with different things that people have given John Paul over the years. Uh, it was as quite gifts. nice. The museum was beautiful. Uh, you can see the outpouring of love from across Christendom, uh, across the world. In the church, it was it was interesting to see a new, a modern church, because you don't see a lot of that in, in Europe. And Poland, of course, is still one of the most church-going corners of Europe, and this beautiful, big, modern church in the memory of John Paul II. Yeah, it's still a work in progress. It's also interesting to see a, a church that is only partially decorated, but they're working on it. And, you know, in his hometown called Wadowice, which is about a half hour, hour outside of the city, there they've turned his home, his boyhood home, into a, a modern state-of-the-art museum as well. So there's lots of efforts recently to, to make it more accessible for people to learn about John Paul II. Jesus annuncia molte volte la paternità di Dio. So we have the, the greatest medieval market square in Europe. We've got wonderful museums about the history, about the Jewish heritage, about uh, World War II and John Paul II. Beata, when you are going to go to Krakow as a, a young Polish tour guide, you're probably more interested in uh, what's going on after dark and where can I get a nice drink. Take us there. Absolutely. The nightlife is happening. And the bars are open till 5, 6 in the morning. And it's cheap for an American traveler. Yes. The service is great. Even Kazimierski, you go out there, traditionally you'd go there for some klezmer music, I think. And now you go there and it's just thriving with trendy pubs and cafes and clubs. And it's just a great scene. 
it's a university city, so you have over 200,000 students just living in, in Krakow. Plus, add to that people from all over the world visiting. And next year, Krakow will be hosting the World Youth Conference. So there's going to be a lot more young people there. You don't just get that opportunity to host the World Youth Conference. You've got to have a few places to put the youth after dark. Yes, yes. I was there walking the streets one night just a year ago, and I stumbled onto a vodka bar that that was kind of designed for tourists to taste all the different kinds of vodka. And for a couple dollars, you had a couple of baristas who really knew their vodka and endless selections. Cameron, what are some of the selections you might have? Well, the most famous, and I think the the funniest story, is one called Zubrowka. Zubr is buffalo, and there actually are bison preserves in northern Poland. And in each bottle of Zubrowka vodka, you have a single blade of grass, And the story goes that the grass comes from these bison preserves. So they think that the bison season the grass, and then the grass seasons the vodka. Um, There's a little picture of a bison right on the bottle. The bison seasons the grass, and the grass seasons the vodka, and then the vodka seasons the pole. You don't have to worry about anything (laughs) getting through the high alcohol content of uh, Polish vodka. You know, there is only two correct ways to drink uh, that particular type of vodka. It's either bottoms up or with uh, apple juice. You don't mix it with any other juice. Oh, you're not supposed to. You can mix it with apple juice? Yes. That's the only juice you're allowed to mix the vodka with. Okay, Beata, we're in a little uh, bar on the, on a back street in Krakow, and we're, we've each got a vodka in front of us. What's the etiquette? What do we do? How do we drink it together? Well, we say, na zdrowie, and bottoms up. You don't sip? You don't sip. You just bottoms up. If I sip, what do people think? Well... That's frowned upon. <laughs> I will say they'll think you're, you're a wuss. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a Polish word? A wuss. <laughs> so I'm a, I won't be a wuss. Okay, bottoms up. Nasrave. And how do you say thank you very much and happy travels? Bardzo dziękuję i przyjemnej podróży. That's what I say to you. Okay, thanks, Pieta, and thanks, Cameron. Dziękuję, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to our friends at the Radio Foundation in New York for their help this week. We'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone, believing that an adventurous spirit and some basic language skills make all the difference when connecting with someone from another culture. Offering a method of immersion and speech recognition to help you learn one of 30 languages. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guidebooks and phrasebooks for Eastern Europe and every other corner of the continent. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the travel store at ricksteves.com.